Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would visit us right now by your Holy Spirit through your living word. We pray that today your spirit would cause us to look down under our feet and see this ground on which we stand and which we live our lives. And if it is not something that will last or endure, we pray that today you would shake that ground and we pray that you would destroy that shaky foundation and set us on new ground, even on the rock, which is Jesus Christ. We pray that you would come do this and that we would look to him for all of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the height of its popularity, the hashtag YOLO was being tweeted out 388,000 times a day. Now, for my friends who are over 40 years old, you know I'm going to help you out right now because I'm going to have to break this down for you. A hashtag is that pound sign that you used to have on your corded phones, and you use it when you send out a tweet. And what a tweet is, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm under 40, so I can make that joke at least for a few more years. But YOLO was this saying, right? The acronym stood for you only live once. It's what the kids say these days. And when they were saying it, they said it 388,000 times a day. You only live once. Well, as I read Ecclesiastes, here's what I'm convinced. That if Solomon had Twitter, I think YOLO would have been his favorite hashtag. He would have put that on everything. If he was on social media, if he had Instagram, he would have hashtagged everything YOLO. He would have taken a picture, like we saw last week, by his palace, hashtag that YOLO. He would have put his party, remember, with 15,000 people who would show up, hashtag YOLO. He would have put a picture, a selfie with him and his wives and his girlfriends, hashtag YOLO, because you only live once. That's what Solomon would have believed. But here's the thing about Solomon. He's wise. He's not a fool. So he doesn't just tweet out YOLO. He thinks about it. He thinks it through. He thinks it deeply. And here's what he comes up with. In fact, I want to suggest the entire book of Ecclesiastes is sort of a treatise on this philosophy. What if this life is all there is? In fact, the way that Solomon says is that his phrase is life under the sun. Did you catch that? You see that in Ecclesiastes over and over and over again. Basically, it's YOLO, meaning, listen, nothing new under the sun is what Solomon said, right? There's nothing new under the sun. So as new and cool as YOLO sounds today, it's just repackaged, reincarnated from different things. In my generation, it was carpe diem, seize the day. Before that, poets used to talk about suck the marrow out of life. Live life to the fullest because this life is all you have. And before that, long before that, Solomon was saying life under the sun. That's all we have. All we can see, taste, touch, hear, observe. This is what life that we can be sure of. And so Solomon begins to write this book of Ecclesiastes to to say this. If this life is all there is, meaning if we don't know if there's a God above, or heaven, or hell after this. We don't know if there's life after death. We're not saying that it can't happen. We may, it may be, it may not be. We just can't be sure. You, you might almost call this optimistic secularism, right? That's what smarter people have called this. Optimistic secularism, or an optimistic agnosticism. Basically, the worldview in which most of our friends, most of the city, most of the country lives in, which is there may be God, there may not be. There may be life after death, they may not be. We just can't be sure. All we know is the here and the now, this life under the sun. And Solomon is saying, if YOLO is right, you only live once, life under the sun, that's all it is, optimistic secularism, then Solomon's conclusion is it's meaningless. 
It's empty. It's nothing. It's vapor. It's hevel of hevels, the Hebrew word, right? It's smoke. It looks real, but when you go to grasp it, it's like catching the wind. It's like trying to put the breeze in your pocket. There's nothing there. If you only live once, if all there is to life is the life that is under the sun, these few laps that we have around the sun is all there is to life, then this life is absolutely and utterly meaningless. Now, we would want to go, our culture would want to go, our country would want to go, hold on, Solomon. What, what do you mean by that, and why would you say that? Well, Solomon's going to tell us in our passage today. Our passage is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 11 to 27. So if you have a Bible, you're going to need that. Uh, it's on page 554. We're going to be camped out in those verses. Page 554, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, following verse 12 onwards. Here's where we're coming from. Let me just catch you up and remind you. When we were looking last week at 2 verses 1 to 11, we saw Solomon in his pursuit of pleasure. Do you remember? His experiment with hedonism. He figures, look, if you only live once, if you're going to die and that's going to be the end of it, then you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? You only live once, you might as well suck the marrow out of life. You might as well carpe diem and seize the day. And so Solomon goes after pleasure with all his might in the first 11 verses of chapter 2. Do you remember? He drank expensive wine. He slept with beautiful women. He built lavish homes. He accumulated great wealth. He made a name for himself. He was admired. He achieved everything he wanted to achieve. He got to the top of every list there was to get to the top of. Do you remember standing up there, not having nothing, but having everything? Standing up there, do you remember last week, he said, as we heard from Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady and Jim Carrey, it's all empty. God, I hope there's more than this. It's not enough. And so now, in verse 12, here's what Solomon does. He looks back over his shoulder to conduct, to see the experiment he just conducted, to evaluate what he just did. He looks back over his shoulder, and the ground behind him is covered in empty liquor bottles and half-eaten caviar, and there's passed-out people lying here, there, and everywhere. And here's Solomon's conclusion of it. Verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So pause there. Solomon evaluates his experiment with pleasure. He tested it out, and here's what he concludes. He says, listen, no one who comes after me is going to do this bigger, better, or badder than I did. Right? You might have gotten drunk through your college years. I had 15,000 people drunk for a decade. I, I, that's the kind of parties I threw. And nobody is going to do this bigger, badder, or better than I did. No one who comes after the king is going to do anything but hit repeat on what I've already done. So, let me tell you from firsthand experience. Having been there and done that and tried that, let me tell you there's no gain in a life of folly. He, he's just dropping wisdom on us and he's saying to us, in general, I want you to know it's better to be wise than to be a fool. If you want to live this life, it's better to go through life with wisdom than to embrace folly. Remember in verse 2 of chapter 2, I had embraced folly. I tried that, but I'm telling you, basically, and he's not saying something very profound here. He's just simply saying to us, it's better for you if you look both ways before you cross the street. 
That's a better way for you to live. It's better for you to run into a room with the lights on and your eyes open than to run into a room with the lights off and it dark and your eyes closed. Things are going to go bad for your life if you do that. Wisdom is better than folly. A life of wisdom is better than foolishness. So now at this point, we almost feel like Solomon is giving the first rays of sunlight. Right? So far, Ecclesiastes has been dark and bleak and everything is vanity and empty and meaningless and you're going to die and, and that's his point. And so now you almost feel like, okay, here's a glimmer of sunlight. So you want to ask Solomon, so Solomon, is that what it is? Is wisdom what we need in life? We should stop partying and pursuing pleasure. What we need is to go get philosophy degrees and be deep thinkers and profound and think through life. And if we have wisdom, maybe that'll take the hevel of life away. Maybe that's the secret. That's what will turn the smoke into substance and we can grab onto this life if we just become wise. And Solomon would say, not so fast. Hold your horses because there's more. He thinks this all the way through. Look at what he says at the end of 14. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. You hear what Solomon's saying? He says, at one level, listen, it's better to be wise than to be a fool. But at a deeper level, if you step back and look at the whole thing, if you only live once, if all there is is this life under the sun, these few laps that we have around the solar system, if that's all that we have, Solomon's question is, what difference does any of it make? What difference does it make? You see, because there's something that levels out the wise guy and the fool. There's something that eventually happens that eliminates any difference or distinguishing between the two, and that something is called death. Death comes, and when it comes, it doesn't just come for fools. What happens to the wise happens to fools also. This will be, Seven Mile Road, one of the many times in Ecclesiastes that Solomon is going to confront us with the reality of death. Ecclesiastes is going to bring up something nobody wants to think about and make us think about it. Last week after church, I was in the lobby and someone rightly said to me, you know what Ecclesiastes does? Ecclesiastes basically says, we all know this, but none of us want to think about it. And Ecclesiastes won't let you not think about it. You want to turn your face away and Solomon will turn your face and say, stay here. Look at this thing. Don't turn aside. Don't be an ostrich and put your head in the ground. Stare at this reality and think this through with me. We all know this. You think about it. If you ask 10 Philadelphians about anything, we'll disagree about everything. We think differently about everything. We think differently about our philosophy of life. We think differently about religion. We think differently about worldview, about politics, ethics, sexuality, marriage. There's nothing we agree about. Everybody thinks differently about everything. In fact, if you think about life and death, we even disagree about when life begins. We don't even stand on the same ground there. But there's one thing all of us can be sure death. There's no disagreement on that one. Everybody is sure. What's one of the few things that are sure in life, right? Death is certain and universal and it's coming and we all know when it's done, it's done. Life ends with death. No disagreement about it. And so Ecclesiastes is saying, okay, take this thing we all agree on. It's universal, it's certain, and it's coming. Have you ever considered 
how death makes everything utterly meaningless. Have you ever considered that if this life under the sun is all there is, you only live once? You don't know about God above or heaven or hell or what happens after this. All we can be sure of, optimistic as we can be, is this one life that we have. Do you see that it makes no difference whether you are wise or a fool because death does not care either way? This is what he says at 15, right? Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the fool as of the wise, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long been forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. Solomon's point, if you'll give him an ear, is that the grave doesn't care if you're wise or if you're a fool. The grave doesn't care if you live like a sinner or a saint. Cemeteries aren't exclusively for morons. You don't get to a graveyard and find every tombstone says, here lies an idiot. No, because the cemetery has no discerning power. It does not care who is buried in. No matter how high you climb, everyone will be put down low. It doesn't make a difference at all. What happens to one happens to the other. And Solomon says, and once you're put in the ground, do you remember what we said two weeks ago? It takes what? Two generations, three at the most, for your name to be utterly forgotten from the earth, that there will not be a trace of your existence anywhere in the universe. Do you remember? I asked it in both services. Do you remember when I asked, anybody know the name of your great-great-granddad? Anybody know the name of your great-granddad? And in two services, that means what? It will take two generations, three at the most, for your own descendants to not even know you existed. Solomon says, whether you were wise or you were a fool, once you go into the grave and death comes to us all and we can all be certain of it, there will be no remembrance of you, no enduring thing of you at all. This is what all of us are headed to because of death. So it doesn't matter if you're wise. And as an added bonus, he also says, and you can't run to work either. It's not wisdom, and it's not work either, meaning you can't run to work and say, there, that's what I'm going to pursue. That's what's going to leave me a legacy. That's what I'm going to carve out my name for all time. That's what's going to give me identity or make sure that I matter for years to come. Psalm would say, don't run there, because there's no point there either. Look at verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has man, what has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation, even in the night his heart does not rest, this also is vanity. Samarod, would you hear this? You are an achieved, accomplished bunch. Would you hear this? How often do we run to our work to give us a sense of meaning and identity and purpose? I mean, you think of this. 
for the bulk of your adult lives, you will give your life to your career, to achieving it, to accomplishing it, to gaining higher ground in it. You will pursue. You've got maybe 70, maybe at the most 80 laps around this sun. And you will give the bulk of that time to your work, to your labors, to your career. You will use this. You only live once. And you will have used a good portion of that time around the sun at work. And Solomon says, but here's the thing. No matter what you build in this life, no matter what empire you create, no matter what, how wisely you work or how hard you work, no matter how many long hours you put in, no matter even, he said, do you remember how many sleepless nights you endure? Ecclesiastes says to us, it's all going to go to someone else. You have 70 to 80 laps around the sun. You use the bulk of some 40 years of it or so to do work. And no matter how hard you work, how wisely you work, what you build up, at the end of that, somebody else is going to enjoy all of it. Somebody else is going to reap the benefits of your labor. Someone else is going to be the master of everything you work for. And Solomon would even add, and who's to tell that that somebody coming up from behind you isn't going to be a fool who utterly squanders everything you spent your laps doing? You had these 70 laps. You spent 40 of them building this thing up. And who's to tell that the guy coming behind you isn't a fool that's going to squander away everything you gave your life for? And listen, Solomon knows this firsthand. He knows this firsthand because Solomon was king of Israel during what would probably be the golden age of Israel. Solomon ruled the kingdom wisely and well. It was a time of unprecedented wealth and peace and flourishing. The kingdom was in its gold age. And yet Solomon's next son, the very next man, he's saying this from firsthand, the guy who comes up behind him, the next king of Israel, is an utter fool. His name is Rehoboam. He's Solomon's son. Rehoboam gives, if you go back, he gives one speech. And in one speech, ten-twelfths of the empire is lost. What, what Solomon had spent his laps around the sun building up this wonderful kingdom, the guy who came up behind him in one speech destroyed the whole thing. And from that point on, the kingdom is torn, never to be united again. It's eventually taken over by other countries. It's downhill from the days of Solomon. And you wonder, you wonder, I wonder, and I'm making this up, you wonder if Solomon, if the voice behind Ecclesiastes is Solomon, you wonder if he penned this as an old man. You wonder if at the end of his life, seeing all that he looked and then going, my son is an idiot. This is not going to go well. You spend your whole life for toil. And then Rehoboam comes in one speech, destroys the whole thing. What is this life? And what is this work but vexation and these sleepless nights that you have endured? You see, here's what Ecclesiastes is trying to get you to see. It's not just wisdom. And it's not just work. Ecclesiastes is going to go deeper under the ground than that. It's going to go beneath your feet and ask you to look at your foundation. And it's going to ask you this. If YOLO is true, you only live this life once. All there is is life under the sun. You can't be sure. You don't know for sure if there's a God above or heaven or hell or judgment or eternity or absolute truth or any of that stuff. All you can be sure of is this optimistic secularism, this optimistic agnosticism. That's all you can be sure then Solomon's question for you is, what difference does anything make? And what does 
anything matter? What does it matter if you were wise or if you were foolish? What does it matter if you woke up at 5 a.m. every morning and went after the day with all your might or you slept in till noon? What does it matter if you lived like a sinner or a saint? What does it matter if you lived this life and you fought for human rights or you trampled on it? What does it matter if you strided after, strove for equality and treated everyone rightly or you were a racist all your life? Ultimately, listen, what does it matter? Because if it's really true that this life under the sun is all there is and then you die and eventually even scientists tell us that the entire solar system is dying. So the entire universe is going to die and become nothing. So now the universe is going to die. It's all going to become nothing. You with it are going to be absolutely nothing. There's going to be nothing of you, no existence. One billion years from now, there'll be no universe and there'll be no you. Then what does any of this right now matter? You become nothing, non-existent. Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever worked for, it will one day not exist and not matter. The entire universe itself is dying. And if that's the case, what does any choice you make on a Tuesday morning matter? Or what does any decision make? What does good or evil or bad or injustice, what does any of it matter? Because does not all of this get brushed aside as ultimately irrelevant? It's all going to nothing. Now listen, you might say to me, you're a preacher. So of course you're going to say stuff like that. You're a pastor in a church. Listen, you don't have to take my word for it. Anyone who's honestly thought through YOLO, who's honestly thought through life under the sun is all there is, these 70 laps that we have around the sun, that's it. Anyone who's thought through that and been honest about it has come to the same conclusion. In fact, let me read you a quote by Jean-Paul Sartre. He is, at least as I've read, one of the most famous atheists of the 20th century. Let me read you a short quote and then a longer one. The short quote says this, life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. Meaning what? Sartre is saying, if you give up the fairy tale that there's going to be life after death and you'll go on forever, if you embrace the hard, cold fact that all you've got are these laps around the sun, you will quickly realize life has no meaning. The Bible didn't say that. Sartre, a leading atheist, says that. In fact, let me have you hear him more. Here's what he says. God does not exist, and we have to face all the consequences of this. Pause for a second. One of the things Sartre was known for was he wanted to think through atheism to its logical, coherent conclusion. And so I respect him a great deal for that. Because he wasn't going to let atheism be convenient for him. He was going to think it through all the way to the bottom. If there is no God, and if all of this we can't tell, where does that lead? And here's what he says. God does not exist, and we have to face all the consequences of this. The existentialist is strongly opposed to a certain kind of secular ethics which would like to abolish God with the least possible expense. The existentialist, on the contrary, thinks it very distressing that God does not exist because all possibilities of finding values in a heaven of ideas disappears with him. There can be no a priori good because there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to think of it. Nowhere is it written that good exists, that we must be honest, that we must not lie, because the fact is we are on a plane where there are only men. Dostoevsky said, if God didn't exist, everything would be permissible. That is the very starting point of existentialism, and as a result, man is forlorn, 
because neither within him nor without does he find anything to cling to. If God does not exist, we find no values or commands to turn to which legitimize our conduct. Do you hear what Sartre is saying? He's saying, think YOLO through. And if you think it through all the way to the bottom, then there's no meaning to any of this. There's no good and there's no bad. There's only men. And there's these few laps around the sun. And you've got to face that with all that you are. In fact, here's what I'm saying. If you're here and you say, life under the sun is all there is. I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if there's heaven or hell. I don't know if there's life after death. But I still have meaning. Do you hear that? If you're like most of the people in our culture, most of the people in our country, probably most of us, if you'd say, I don't know about any of the stuff before or after, but I know this, I have meaning, and I know that I matter and people matter, I know that right and wrong matters, I know that it's important to be a good person and being for human rights is more important than trampling them, I know that stuff, you can't be sure of a lot of things, but I am absolutely sure of this, then hear me, it's not even the Bible, it's not even Solomon, Sartre, the most famous atheist of the 20th century, would say, you talk about blind faith. You talk about being naive. You talk about being willing to believe anything. You have no ground for your optimistic secularism. You have no ground for your optimistic agnosticism. You see, Sartre is saying, Ecclesiastes is saying, at least be honest. At least be honest. If this life under the sun is all there is, are you willing to face what that means about life? And if you say to me, listen, Ajay, you can talk all day about Solomon and you can quote Sartre, but listen, the average person doesn't care about philosophy. The average person doesn't live life based on philosophy 101. The average person doesn't care about where life began or what happens after you die. Here's what the average person would say. The average person would say, listen, when I know that I meet someone that I love, I know it's meaningful to me. In that moment, I know it's meaningful. The average person would say, listen, when I do something good and accomplish something at work, it's meaningful to me. When I help someone, it's meaningful to me. And you can't take that away. I think Ecclesiastes would say, I am sure that you are a loving person. And I'm sure that you're a kind person. And I'm sure that you're a very accomplished person. But friend, you're turning your head. And I need you to step back and consider this whole thing. How does the whole thing make sense? I read this book by this guy named Peter Kreeft, a very brilliant guy whose book on Ecclesiastes was so helpful. He referenced this old comic named Jeff and Mutt. And in this comic, it, it, this is how the comic went. It's these two friends, Jeff and Mutt, and, and it's always this irony and always these plays at things. Well, Jeff is standing by a pile of stones real high with a lit lantern at the top of these stones. It's the middle of the night, and he's standing there by these stones with a lit lantern on top. And his friend Mutt comes by, and he says, Jeff, did you put the lantern up there? And he said, of course I did. Why? So that cars don't smack into these stones, and so the lantern is there. And then he takes that in, and then he says, and did you put the stones there? Of course I did. Why? To put the lantern there. And then the comic has this circular insanity to it, right? The, the stones are there to hold up the lantern, and the lantern is there because of the stones. And, and that seems insane if you think about it, and yet here's the point. One person said this, what is he doing? He's finding meaning in one part and then meaning in another part without stepping back to say, is there meaning in the whole thing? Or is the whole thing just a stupid circle? It'd be like one person said it this way. It's like you ask someone, why do they work? 
They work so that I can go on vacation and pursue hobbies and travel and pursue leisure. And why do you do that? So I can rest and recharge my batteries. And why do you do that? So that I could go to work. And so you work to go on vacation so that you could rest to go to work, so that you could go on vacation so that you could rest to go to It's insanity until you step back and you go, what's the point of the whole thing? And here's the point. One preacher said it this way. If you step back, none of us live our lives without observing the whole thing or, or considering the point of it all. Because if, if I were to tell you, as an example, if I were to tell you tomorrow, I need you to go stand at Roosevelt Boulevard and I need you to just stand there at the corner for an hour, what would be your first question to me? You'd go, why? Why would I do that? And if I said to you for no reason at all, just, I just need you to do that, I promise you, you will not be at Roosevelt Boulevard tomorrow. Why? Because you don't do anything that doesn't have a point. You're not going to do anything that doesn't ultimately make any difference at all. It makes no sense to do that at all. And yet Ecclesiastes is saying, would you step back and if you try to find meaning in every individual action of your life, and you can't imagine doing one thing, not one hour of your life that doesn't have a point, then Ecclesiastes is saying, what about your whole life? That if you were to step back from this whole thing and say, if life under the sun is all there is, and a hundred years from now or when the universe dies, you will be nothing. And nothing you ever did for good or evil will last. Nothing choices that you've ever made, wise or foolish, work hard or be lazy, it won't matter. Then what's the point? Which is why Solomon says, hevel of hevels, everything is hevel. Life under the sun is vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. You can understand why the preacher gets to where he gets to in verse 17. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. You can see why in 20 he gives his heart over to despair. And yet, friends, he doesn't end there because there's another way. There's a twist. There's a twist that comes, and it almost comes out of left field like it's catching us by surprise, like it comes out of nowhere because here's what he's doing. He is a brilliant preacher. Do you remember? That's verse 1. These are the words of the preacher, and this preacher is brilliant because what he's doing, he's not just telling you. He's asking you questions so that you look under your feet and you go, what is my life grounded on? And what he's pushing you to do is to say, either have the courage to consider that this life under the sun is all there is and therefore it's meaningless. None of it matters. Or, or the preacher is saying, have the courage to consider maybe YOLO is wrong. Maybe optimistic secularism doesn't make sense. Maybe there's no grounding for optimistic agnosticism. And in fact, Ecclesiastes, the preacher is pushing you to consider would you consider there's God? And that makes all the difference. Look at 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Here's the twist. Here's the surprise. Are you ready? 
the preacher is actually not trying to lead us to conclude life is meaningless. Instead, the preacher, through the back door, surprising as it is, actually wants us to see if you account for God, life is wonderfully meaningful. If you account for God, then everything turns. 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find his enjoyment under his toil. Now listen, he'll say this a few times in Ecclesiastes, so we'll come back to this. This is one of my favorite parts of Ecclesiastes. In fact, I think some of this is the point of Ecclesiastes. But for today, for the sake of time, we'll come back to it. For now, would you just hear this? Till now, in chapter 2, what has he been saying? Life is not found in food or drink or work. That's not where life is found. And now he's saying, there is nothing better in life than to eat and drink and enjoy your work. And you go, wait. You just said life is not found in food or drink or work, and now you're saying there's nothing better in life than food or drink or work. And we'll say more about it later. But for right now, would you consider, what's the difference? What's the difference with food and drink and work in 2, 1 through 11, and food and drink and work now? Just one word, God. Because now for the first time in Ecclesiastes, he really brings God in and considers him as a reality. And he says, this also I saw is from the hand of God. Solomon is starting to turn the corner and say, if there is a God, if there is a God of the scriptures, if there is the God who in fact the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, very last verse says, there is a God you will face one millisecond after you die. That death will not be the last word. It's not just YOLO. Because one second after those 70 laps are done, you will face God who will judge both good and evil. And if there is a God you will stand before to give an account for your life, then do you see that the message of Ecclesiastes is everything matters. Every choice you ever make matters. Every decision, whether for good or ill, matters. Nothing is brushed aside as irrelevant. You see... If you only live life once, then you have to look to food and drink and work as all the stuff you can squeeze out of this life because you only live once. And so you look to food and drink as the thing that will save you from heaven, the thing that will bring meaning to this otherwise meaningless life. But Ecclesiastes is saying food and drink and work can't save you from heaven, but God can. And once God comes in and brings meaning, now you can go back to the same food the same drink and the same work and not place the weight of your entire existence on it but receive it for what it is as gifts from the hand of God. Now I don't eat or drink or work to give purpose and meaning to my life. God has already done that. So now I go back to the same food and drink and work and receive it for what it is as a gift from God. We'll say more in the weeks to come but for today let me just end with this. If you're here and you hear Ecclesiastes, and if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, you don't believe in this book, you don't believe in God, my one question for you is, isn't there at least, and you might not even admit it because this would shatter your current worldview, isn't there at least a part of you that hopes YOLO is wrong? Isn't there at least some part of you that goes, I wish the fairy tales were true and we did live happily ever after? And I wish that what waited for me was not to be blanked out and blanked out and gone. And I wish there was something after death. 
And I wish, in, in some sense, I could be immortal. Chapter 3 says, God's put that in your heart, this sense of eternity into your soul. Isn't there a part of you that wishes there was something that could defeat death? Isn't there something in you that wishes there was something that would be stronger than the grave? Don't you wish there would be somebody who could defeat death and not be reduced to nothing? And not be forgotten by the universe? But endure, remember, last, be permanent. Remember we said in week one, Ecclesiastes is courageously raising the questions that the rest of the Bible will come and give answers to. And Ecclesiastes is asking, is there anything that can save us from the grave that would bring meaning to this hevel life? And the rest of the Bible wants to raise his hand and say, yes, there is a message from the rest of the book. In fact, the story of the Bible is this. In the beginning, God created human beings and put them in a place. The Bible calls that place Eden. And you know what they had? They had food and drink and work to do and each other, and they had God. And they were as happy as you can be. They had food and drink and work and each other and God. And as happy as you can be. And then these human beings rejected God and turned to food and drink and work and each other to find meaning for their life. And life suddenly became meaningless. Death came in and now these very things they enjoyed turned on them and there was no meaning in them. And then the rest of the Bible would say, but God so loved these human beings that he came into life under the sun. His name is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And he lived a happy and whole and meaningful life. He trusted this God beyond the sun above him, and he lived full as you could be. And yet four human beings who had rejected God, he took their place and bore on himself what they deserved, death. And he died in their place for their rejection of this God. And yet three days later, the Bible would say, this Jesus rose from the dead. He is the first man to defeat death. That death would not have the last word. Somebody was stronger than the grave. Somebody came up from the grave. Somebody has not been reduced to nothing and forgotten forever. In fact, he now has a name that will last forever. He will never be forgotten. His name is Jesus Christ. And the rest of the story is his love for his people is so powerful that if you come into a relationship with him, you will never drift into the past tense. You will never go from an am to a was. You will always be because he will never lose those who are in him. And you too will go under the ground, but just like him, you will come again. And death will not have the last word. And the 70 laps are just the beginning. Even if you're not a Christian, don't you wish that was true? And so Ecclesiastes is asking you, consider that it is. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you think this whole sermon has been for a bunch of non-Christians, hopefully they heard you. I want you to know, does your life ever drift into being empty, meaningless? Do you ever drift into despair? It's because you know this Jesus up here, but your heart drifts. And you go back to the things of this world to find meaning. And Jesus this morning through Ecclesiastes is saying, you were there once. But you saw it to be heaven. So stop running back. And this morning he's calling you again. Have you drifted? 
so that your heart is still looking again to stuff you already know won't satisfy, then this morning Jesus is saying, I'm here. You found me once, rather I found you once, come back again, that you might find meaning in me. And so we'd hear the preacher, and we'd say, preacher, listen. Yes, death makes everything heaven, but preacher, we believe in the one beyond the sun who has defeated death and therefore gives meaning to this life. And now we eat our food and drink our drink and go to work with thanksgiving, receiving it all as good gifts from God, because preacher, there is nothing better under the sun than to enjoy these things with our God. And I think if you said that, the preacher would say to you, amen. That is exactly what I was hoping you would see. Let's pray together.